Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws, a show about all things poetry. I'm your host, Catherine Owen. State of the Planet by Robert Haas. One. October on the planet at the century's end, rain lashing the windshield through blurred glass gusts of a Pacific storm rocking a huge shank-needled Himalayan cedar. Under it, a Japanese plum throws off a vertical cascade of leaves the color of skin copper, if copper could be skinned. And under it, her gait as elegant and supple as the young of any earth species. A schoolgirl negotiates a crosswalk in the wind, her hair flying. The red satchel on her quite straight back, darkening splotch by smoky crimson splotch as the rain pelts it. One of the six billion of her hungry and curious kind. Inside the backpack, dog-eared, full of illustrations, a book with a title like Getting to Know Your Planet. The book will tell her that the earth this month has yawed a little distance from the sun and that the air cooling has begun to move as sensitive to temperature as skin is to a lover's touch. It will also tell her that the air, it's likely to say the troposphere, has trapped emissions from millions of cars idling like mine as she crosses and is making a greenhouse of the atmosphere. The book will say that climate is complicated, that we may be doing this, and if we are, it may explain that this was something we've done quite accidentally, which she can understand not having meant that morning to have spilled the milk. She's one of those who's only hungry metaphorically. Two. Poetry should be able to comprehend the earth, to set aside from time to time its natural idioms of ardor and revulsion and say, in a style as sober as the Latin of Lucretius, who reported to Venus on the state of things 2,000 years ago, it's your doing that under the wheeling constellations of the sky, he wrote, all nature teems with life, something of the earth beyond our human dramas. Topsoil, going fast. Rivers, damned and fouled. Cod, about fished out. Haddock, about fished out. Pacific salmon nosing against dams from Yokohama to Kamchatka to Seattle and Portland, flailing up fish ladders against turbines in a rage to breed much older than human beings and interdicted by the clever means that humans have devised to grow more corn and commandeer more lights. Most of the ancient groves are gone, sacred to Quan Yin and Artemis sacred to the gods and goddesses in every picture book the child is apt to read. Three. Lucretius, we have grown so clever that mechanics in our art of natural philosophy can take the property of luminescence from a jellyfish and put it in mice. In the dark, the creatures give off greenish light. Their bodies must be very strange to them. An artist in Chicago, think of a great trading city in Dacia or Thracia, has asked to learn the method so he can sell people dogs that glow in the dark. Four. The book will try to give the child the wonder of how, in our time, we understand life came to be. Stuff flung off from the sun, the molten core still pouring, sometimes rivers of black basalt across the earth from the old fountains of its origin. A hundred million years of clouds, sulfurous rain, the long cooling, There is no silence in the world like the silence of rock from before life was. You come across it in a Mexican desert, a Palo Verde tree nearby, moss green. Some insect-eating bird with wing feathers the color of a morning sky perched on a limb of the tree. 
That blue, that green, the completely fierce alertness of the bird that can't know the amazement of its being there, a human mind that somewhat does, regarding a black outcrop of rock in the desert near a sea, charcoal black and dense, wave-worn, and all one thing. There's no life in it at all. It must be a gift of evolution that humans can't sustain wonder. We'd never have gotten up from our knees if we could. But soon enough, we'd fashioned sexy little earrings from the feathers, highlighted our cheekbones by rubbings from the rock, and made a spear from the sinewy wood of the tree. 5. If she lived in Michigan or the Ukraine, she'd find, washed up on the beach in a storm like this, limestone fossils of Devonian coral. She could study the faint white markings. She might have to lick the stone to see them if the wind was drying the pale surface even as she held it, to bring back the picture of what life looked like 300 million years ago, a honeycomb with mouths. 6. Cells that divided and reproduced. From where? Why? In our century, it was the fashion of philosophy not to ask unanswerable questions. That was left to priests and poets, an attitude you'd probably approve. Then a bacterium grew green pigment. This was the essential miracle. It somehow unmated carbon dioxide to eat the carbon and turn it into sugar and spit out, hiss out the molecules of oxygen the child on her way to school is breathing, and so bred life. Something then of DNA, the curled musical ladder of sugars, acids. From there to eyes, ears, wings, hands, tongues, armadillos, piano tuners, gnats, sonnets, military interrogation, the coho salmon, the Margaret Truman rose. 7. The people who live in Tinia on the Napo River say that the black viscid stuff that pools in the selva is the blood of the rainbow boa curled in the earth's core. The great trees in that forest house ten thousands of kinds of beetle, reptiles no human eyes has ever seen changing color on the hot green hardly changing leaves whenever a faint breeze stirs them. In the understory bromeliads and orchids whose flecked petals and womb or mouth-like flowers are the shapes of desire and human dreams. And butterflies larger than her palm held up to catch a ball or ward off fear. Along the river wide-leaved banyans where flocks of raucous parrots Fruit eaters and seed eaters rise in startled flares of red and yellow and bright green. It will seem to be poetry, forgetting its promise of sobriety, to say the rosy shinings in the thick brown current or small dolphins rising to the surface or goats of the oil that burns inside the engine of the car on driving ooze from the banks. 8. The book will tell her that the gleaming appliance that kept her milk cold in the night required chlorofluorocarbons, Lucretius, your master Epictetus was right about atoms in a general way. It turns out they are electricity having sex in an infinite variety of permutations. Plato's yearning halves of a severed being multiplied in all the ways that all the shapes on earth are multiple, complex. The philosopher who said that the world was fire was also right. Chlorofluorocarbons react with ozone, the gas that makes air tingle on a sparkling day. Nor were you wrong to describe them as assemblies, as if evolution were a town meeting or a plebiscite. Your theory of wind and of gases was also right, and there are more of them than you supposed. Ozone high in the air makes a kind of filter, keeping out parts of sunlight damaging to skin. The device we use to keep our food as cool as if it sat in snow required this substance, and it reacts with ozone. Where oxygen breeds it from ultraviolet light, it burns a hole in the air. 9. 
They drained the marshes around Rome. Your people, you know, were the ones who taught the world to love vast fields of grain, the power and the order of the green, then golden rows of it, spooled out almost endlessly. Your poets, those in the generation after you, were the ones who praised the packed seed heads and the vineyards and the olive groves and called them smiling fields. In the years since, we've gotten even better at relentless simplification, but it's taken until our time for it to crowd out savagely the rest of life. No use to rail against our curiosity and greed. They keep us awake and are, for all their fury and their urgency, compatible with intelligent restraint. In the old paintings of the Italian Renaissance, in the fresco painters who came after you, it was the time in which your poems were rediscovered. There was a period when you and Venus were lost. How could she be lost? You may well ask. Anyway, in those years, the painters made of our desire an allegory and a dance in the figure of three graces. The first, the woman coming towards you is the appetite for life. The one who seems to turn away is chaste restraint, and the one whom you've just glimpsed her back to you is beauty. The dance resembles wheeling constellations. They made of it a figure for something elegant or lovely. Forethought gives our species. One would like to think it makes a dance that the black and white flash or a flock of buntings in October wind headed south toward winter habitat would find that the December fields their kind had known and mated in for 30 centuries or more were still intact, that they will not go the way of the long-billed Arctic curlews who flew from Newfoundland to Patagonia in every weather and are gone now from the kinds on earth, the last of them seen by any human alit in a Texas marsh in 1964. 10. What is to be done with our species? Because we know we're going to die to be submitted to that tingling dance of atoms once again, it's easy for us to feel that our lives are a dream, as this is in a way a dream. The flailing rain, the birds, the soaked red backpack of the child, her tendrils of wet hair, the windshield wipers, this voice trying to speak across the centuries between us, even the long story of the earth, boreal forests, mangrove swamps, Tiberian wheat fields and the summer heat on hillsides south of Rome. All of it, a dream. And we alive somewhere or somehow outside it, watching. People have been arguing for centuries about whether or not you thought of Venus as a metaphor. Because of the rational man they take you for. Also about why your poem ended with a plague, the bodies heaped in the temples of the gods, to disappear. First one, then a few, then hundreds, just stopping over here to vanish in the marsh at dusk. So easy in imagination to tell the story backward, because the earth needs a dream of restoration. She dances, and the birds just keep arriving, thousands of them, immense arctic flocks, her teeming life. You've been listening to Miss Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.